Well, as usual, it is my pleasure to meditate on the Word of God with you. So go ahead and grab your swords of the Spirit. We're going to be in Psalm 107 this morning. Psalm 107 is the first psalm of a very celebratory book five of the Psalter. Uh, This psalm is the last in a kind of trilogy of thanksgiving to God for his wondrous deeds along with Psalms 105 and 106. And so this trilogy kind of overlaps the end of book four and the beginning of book five. Each of these three psalms begins with these words, O give thanks to the Lord. And then verse, or, uh, Psalms 106 and 7 add, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so, as the psalmist is writing Psalm 107, uh, he's most likely thinking of the joyful end to the exile in Babylon. Uh, The bulk of Psalm 107 was written long before, but it began to take on a whole new meaning uh, as the faithful remnant returns after 70 years in captivity. Uh, They were under captivity under the pagan rule of the Babylonian Empire, and this is the empire that destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed uh, the temple and ended the line of Davidic kings, at least until God would send a Messiah, whom we know, of course, is Christ the Lord. And so after, after Persia defeats Babylon, the Jews are regathering uh, from the four corners of the compass, the four points of the compass. Uh, they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, and the Jews dust off this song and they add to it. The original part of the song is in verses 4 through 32, but the returning Jews, well, they add the opening verses of praise and then they add verses 33 through 42 about God's power to reverse circumstances and of course they also add the closing word in verse 43 about a uh, word to the wise and so just like we from time to time will dust off an old hymn and uh, add some verses and maybe a a cool bridge to it uh, this old song has become new to the faithful Jews who are returning to Jerusalem and so Let's turn to Psalm 107 and let's read together. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, Finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. 
for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders." He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all the wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, Leslie and I, we love, we love to look at maps. We just love maps. And that's because maps are they're all about people. Maps are filled with stories about people. There's history everywhere. They're, everybody's got a personal history. And those stories are, are fascinating and, and being written every single day. And let me, let me just show you what I mean by this. I've got a map here of Virginia. And I can tell the story of my life with this map. I can show you on the map here. It's a, it's a lot like the one that's on the screen. I was born and raised in Alexandria, right across from the river from D.C. Uh, to me, uh, to say that Alexandria is in the D.C. area is a little bit not right, because I grew up in Alexandria, not D.C. 
And so this is where I grew up. I grew up in a place that is a, a hodgepodge of people from all over the place. And this is the environment I grew up in. And I'm glad I grew up there. It was a great experience. But then, as I was a boy and we traveled around, we traveled around Virginia a lot. We traveled around the country a lot. But, but we spent most of our time in Virginia and a little bit to the west in a place called West Virginia that used to be a part of Virginia. Uh, that's where most of my family's from. So there's a lot of places in West Virginia that mean a great deal to me as well. But then, you know, I got a little older, and I graduated from high school, and I went to college in a little place called Lexington, and I'm having trouble finding it here. It's a long 81, looking in the wrong place. There we go. All right, just south of Stanton by about 30 minutes or so, right at the intersection of 64 and 81. That was a great experience, too, namely because that's where I met my wife. That's where our roads intersected. And by the way, uh, there's another place on the map, not too far away from Lexington, that is near and dear to us, and that's where Leslie is this morning. It's at a place called Bedford, Virginia. David Winks knows all about Bedford, because he's from nearby Forest. Bedford's about halfway between Roanoke and Lynchburg, and Leslie is there because she went to a shower this weekend for our future daughter-in-law. That's only a month away. We're looking forward to that. And so then I moved back to Alexandria, and then we, Leslie and I, we ended up in this little place out here called Warrenton, called Warrenton, and so on. The, the point is, is that this map, it tells the story of my life. It really does. It tells the story of my life, and what these roads and these places represent is the course of my life, not just the cold, hard facts. But as I look at this map, I see my spiritual life, the God I met in all of these events and experiences of my life in these various places. God is the one who took me down those roads, and he took me down those roads to bring me here today. How did you get here this morning? You had your own roads you had to travel, and some of us came from the north, some of us came from the south, and some from the east, and from, some from the west. Some of us can't just uh, base our life on the map of Virginia. We need the whole map of the United States to tell our story. Some of us, well, we might even need the whole globe, right? Because we're from faraway places. We're from foreign lands like Texas and, well, other places too. But we've traveled all over the world. We've spent time in other places and so on. So these maps, they tell the story of our lives. And so no matter what roads that you have been down, no matter where you're from, no, no matter where you've been, the reason that you're here today, if you put your trust in Christ, is that you've been traveling along the way. The way is what the early church called Christianity. Your story is a story of God at work in your life. Your story, your, the map of your life is one that is full of Jesus Christ. But even though the details on your map are different from mine and so on, all of our stories have one thing in common. And that is that we were lost, but God in his mercy guided us by one single compass point, and that's his grace. 
And that's because we got here on roads that were paved with the steadfast love of God. As we look back on our life's experiences, no doubt we can all point to a dot on a map and say, this is where, this is where I had the toughest experience of my life. But you know, at the same time, we're also able to declare that that is also where God met us with his steadfast love. That is also where God, in his steadfast love, paved the way for us out of that distress. All of us who belong to Christ share that one thing in common, no matter where our roads have led us. That's what Psalm 107 is about. Psalm 107 is a beautiful Hebrew poem about our difficulties on the road of life and how God delivered the Jews by the same road that is paved with steadfast love. See, it never changes. It's also a call for us to pray from the midst of our trouble, and it's a call to praise God forever and ever, now and forevermore, to praise God for his steadfast love. And so as we take a look at Psalm 107, the structure of it is very clear, and the structure actually helps us to understand the message of this psalm. First of all, in the first three verses, we see a call to praise. And then in verses 4 through 32, this is a big chunk of the psalm, uh, the original part of this poem, we see cause for praise in four vignettes, four stories about distress and deliverance. And then after these stories of God's deliverance, we see a portrayal of God's control in verses 33 through 42. And then finally, there's the closing call to meditate on God's loyal love. And the big idea of this, the, the premise that the psalmist wants us to understand is that since God delivers us, we the redeemed should praise him now and forevermore. And here's the lesson that we can take home with us this morning. God is able to lift us out of our distress. He's able to do it and he does it because of his steadfast love that is proven in Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's first look at this call to praise in verses 1 through 3. To understand the context for this call to praise, well, let's take a look at a map, shall we? The green area on the screen here, if you can see that, is the area of the Babylonian Empire after it defeated Judah. This is around 605 B.C., and they began to deport the Jews from Jerusalem into exile. The red oval marks on our uh, mark where Canaan's land is, the promised land. This is the land that God gave to the Israelites. This is the area that was home for the nations of Israel and Judah for six or seven hundred years before the exile. That is until God allowed them, because of their sin, to be overtaken by a pagan empire called Babylon. And so these pagans, with God's uh, permission over time, they, they kicked the Jews out of the land that God had promised them. This was a crushing blow to the Jews because what it seemed to mean to them is that God had abandoned them. God had abandoned his promises to them. But now, now after about 70 years, God is bringing the Jews out of their exile and back home. The Babylonian king has been defeated and the Jews have returned to the city that is the focal point of their lives. 
The temple had been destroyed decades earlier, but now there are wonderful and hopeful plans to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple to their former glory. And as we read further in uh, uh, the story of this history after the exile, we see that that comes true. They actually do this. The temple is so important to the Jews because it's where they find God. It's their identity. This is where their sins are atoned for through the rituals of worship that Yahweh himself had taught them so long ago. Jerusalem and the temple are so important because God is there. And now, and now the Jews are there too. The Jews have come home. We all know what that's like after we've been away for a long time and we get home. It is a wonderful place to be. And so the Jews are feeling this in spades. And so, as the psalmist declares in verse 1, praise is in order. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God is faithful, you see. The, the return of God's people to Jerusalem to rebuild it is proof that God loves them loyally and steadfastly. Remember, this kind of love of God is not a matter of obligation on his part, but it's a matter of mercy and faithfulness on God's part. Just because he's holy. He loves because he's holy. His love doesn't depend on us at all. He loves because he chooses to love. And so the psalmist is celebrating the steadfast love of God as he reflects on how God has delivered his people from the Babylonian exile. This their return is a sign that God's love is indeed loyal. It's steadfast. It's strong. The people have been reclaimed by God. Verses 2 and 3, it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, which is simply to say they've been scattered. They've been scattered everywhere, but now God is bringing them back. And so as people who've been reclaimed by God from their enemies, the redeemed, the only appropriate response is that they should celebrate the steadfast love of God. They should praise God because God has ended this exile and he's brought his people back home. So as we think about exile, there are... There are a lot of 20-something-year-olds today who are in a sort of self-imposed exile from the Christian faith. These are young men and women who won't darken the door of a church, even though they grew up in church. But now that they're adults, well, they want to try the world on for size. For some of them, the world's going to suit them just fine. But you know, for others, as they explore the world and as they take some detours down some side roads, they're going to realize that, that those side roads lead to nowhere. One of, my, one of my absolute favorite things to do is to hop on my motorcycle and take an aimless ride into Rappahannock County and look for as many side roads as I can to explore. I love finding roads I've never been down before. But I got to tell you, it is amazing how many side roads end up being dead ends. They don't lead to anywhere. They just stop. So they don't lead anywhere, at least when you're going away from the main road. 
But I tell you what, when you turn around, when I, when I reverse direction, all of a sudden the roads lead somewhere. They lead back to the main road. And you see, this is what God has done with his people. They turned away from God and they found the dead end. But after, after he disciplined them for so long, for 70 years in exile, God in his steadfast love has turned them around. He's turned them back toward the main road, back to the, in the right direction, back toward him. And so now God's people are returning from all directions. They were all over the place, but God is gathering them together again. And the road home for each one of them, no matter where they're coming from, the road home is paved with the steadfast love of God. So that's the call to praise in the first three verses. It's the foundation for the pattern that we see in the causes for praise in verses 4 through 32. Now, as we look at these stories, there's a lot of debate among the scholars about what these, uh, what these specific events, what these, each of these four vignettes correspond to in the history of the Jews. But none of the situations that's described is detailed enough for us to draw any kind of absolute conclusions. And so, really, we can only guess what they're about and prayerfully decide how they apply to us. The first story in verse 9 describes people who wander in the desert. Naturally, of course, we can draw a comparison to the Jews' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the, the, uh, the exodus from Egypt and before they go into the promised land. They were surely looking for a city to dwell in, one like Jerusalem where God would also dwell with the people. The second story is in verses 10 through 16, and it portrays people who are prisoners because of their rebellion against God. Maybe the psalmist had in mind King Zedekiah. He was the last miserable king of Judah as the Jews fell to the Babylonians. Listen to this in 2 Kings 25, 7. Zedekiah was one of the, 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 the last ones who had done what was evil in the sight of God. And so this is what happens to him. In 2 Kings 25, 7, the Babylonians slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And it turns out that that's the very last thing he sees because the next thing that happens is that the Babylonians put out the eyes of Zedekiah and they bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And so he goes to Babylon in chains, he goes to prison. And that's where he dies. But of course, the people live on in captivity for 70 long years. The third story is in verses 17 through 22. It tells of people who were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. The psalmist might be remembering how people in their foolishness spoke out against God in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, 6 says, God sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And then there's the fourth story in verses 23 through 32. This is a story of sailors, of men who went to sea. And by the way, the, the word for sea, depending on how it's used in Hebrew, can also mean south, but clearly here the sea is meant. But at any rate, being a sailor was an unusual occupation for the Jews. And this is where 
in the sea where in verse 26 and 27 their courage melted away in their evil plight and they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Could be that the psalmist had in mind Maybe Jonah and the sailors who were bound for Tarshish in Jonah chapter 1 when Jonah was running away from God. But the lack of details in each of these vignettes begs us not to dwell so much on the details of other people's situations, but instead for us to draw comparisons to ourselves in similar circumstances. The first situation invites us to remember the times when we've wandered in a spiritual desert. Here on the screen is, is where that desert was that the Jews wandered in and also a, a picture of what it looks like. It's a pretty bleak place. There's hardly anything growing there at all. It was hot and dry. And so they spent 40 years traipsing around this very bleak place that was unable to sustain them, and yet God always provided what they needed. God sustained them. God himself was their sustenance. He was their home. But the people got tired, didn't they? They wanted to rest. They wanted, they wanted a home of their own. And, well, they got kind of tired of depending on God, so they complained a lot. Isn't that kind of what we do? You know, it doesn't matter about all the things we can look back on, the, the map that we can look at and say, in this place God did this, and in that place God did that. Never mind all those miracles in our lives that we can remember. We want God to do something for us right now. Because after all, God is, his own, is only as good as his latest miracle, isn't he? That can be our attitude sometimes. You know, I told you last week about how years ago God miraculously saved my job and, and I got a big raise. Well, do you think I became some kind of spiritual giant because of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I very quickly became all preoccupied with life and all the trials. With each new trial, I couldn't imagine how in the world God's going to get us out of this one. I don't know how you're going to do it, God. I'm so worried. Maybe you need my advice. You see, we get hungry and tired, and we want, we want to rest. We want to end to all of the trouble. And so that's when we become faint-hearted. Our problems become big, and our God becomes small. We forget that God has a purpose in all the things that we go through. We forget, and we just want to find a rest stop along the way. We want to stop traveling altogether. We want to find a, a really decent place to stop for good where we can just sit by the pool and take a nap, right? But you see, sometimes, as in the second story, that can lead to sin, and sin, sin can rule our lives even to the point of the shadow of death in verse 10. This is when we rebel against God. We remember that before we put our trust in Christ, we were slaves to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6.6. 6. Sin itself is a prison like Babylon, far away from God and home. Unrepentant sin locks us up, and it makes us blind to God, just like King Zedekiah was locked up in Babylon with his eyes gouged out of his head. Some of us here today know something of what that's like. We remember that pain. We know what it's like to be slaves to sin. Some of us have struggled mightily with alcoholism. We've struggled with maybe drugs and pornography. Some of us 
It doesn't have to be the big sins like that either. And some of us struggle with, with depending on material things for our security and our contentment. All of it is rebellion against God. It doesn't matter how big we think a certain sin is or little. All sin is rebellion. When, we're, when we sin, we're declaring that there's something else besides God that can satisfy us. And that leads to just plain old foolishness. And this is where the third story comes in, in verses 17 through 22. Foolishness is to challenge God's wisdom. So now we're back in the wilderness in Numbers 21.5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wow, there's an accusation against God. You know, Ernest read the scripture a little while ago. His son is a highly accomplished professional chef. Can you imagine his reaction if we sat down to eat one of his best dishes and we ended up calling it worthless? How foolish would that be? So think of how foolish it would be for the people of God to criticize God for his miracle. God had faithfully provided for them day after day after day, year after year after year in a land that is beyond the limits of human habitation, a land that is impossible to survive in, but they have the gall to complain. They've got the gall to call his provision for them worthless. We would never do that, right? Or would we? (laughs) Isn't that what we do sometimes? You know, God, I really need a better job. I don't like the way you're providing for me. I need a better car. What you've given me isn't enough. I need a better situation. God, I sure hope you've got a really good reason for all of this suffering, for making me suffer like this. Because after all of this suffering, God, really, when it comes down to it, You owe me. You owe me. And then there's the fourth situation. This is kind of an unusual situation. These sailors, these men who go off to sea and their courage melts away and they come to their wits' end. Jonah went to sea to flee from God's call to go to Nineveh. The red arrows here on the map, they show the trip that he wanted to take to avoid God's command. And the green star there, a little bit to the right of where he begins, that's where Nineveh is. This is a map that really shows a man's heart. (laughs) It shows just how far he wanted to get away from God as he went in the opposite direction as far as he knew how to go, or he tried to. God interrupted that plan. Jonah's evil plight in verse 26 would be the storm that God sent to correct his sin and to send him back to Nineveh. The sailors who are with Jonah realize that their skill and power as seamen cannot save them against the power of the storm that God sends. The sea is too much for them to handle in spite of their skill. And so they depend completely on the mercy of God who controls the seas. And here we begin to see ourselves again. Sometimes we run away from God. We know God is calling us to holiness, but but we run away. We know what God wants us to do, but, but we run away. We put God off for another day. 
come up with excuses as to why we can't obey him or why we won't obey him. And I think the struggle in the sea can also apply in a different kind of way. As corny as this sounds, God sends the storms of life sometimes to grow our faith. But to do that, he allows us sometimes to get to our wit's end. We don't like that, do we? I've been there a few times when I've realized that as wise and skillful as I thought I was to handle life, that I was really pretty puny compared to life's challenges. A lot of us know what that's like. When we experience a prolonged illness of a child, it's heartbreaking. We have a difficult situation with a relationship. We lose our job. We're we're grieving over a lost loved one. These kind of things are just too much for us to handle on our own. We need the awesome power of God, the awesome power of God who can control those stormy seas of life, the one who can bring peace and stillness. We need the power of God. So just as we can point to a place on a map in each of these scenarios. I can point to a map and I can show you where I was when I experienced something of each one of these four scenarios. I bet you can too. And you know what? I bet a few of us right now are experiencing one or some of of those scenarios. When we point to a map, we point to Warrenton on today, October 22nd. In each of these situations, there's a palpable level of spiritual distress, isn't there? Because our relationship with God, there's friction there. We're at odds with God. Our relationship is hampered. But there's also, glory be to God, there's also a way of deliverance from our distress. It's a way that we all share in common, a road that is paved with the steadfast love of God, and it is a road that begins with prayer. Notice how each of these stories comes to a conclusion. In verse 6, in verse 13, in verse 19, and in verse 28, it says the same thing. It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. You see, in every single case, the people prayed from the standpoint of their distress, from the midst of their need. And because they belonged to God, because of his loyal love for them, he heard their cry and he delivered them. And you know, this is the same kind of relationship we have with Christ. Hold on, get ready to catch a whole bunch of scriptures here because I'm about to throw them your way. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Not only does Christ know us, but right now he's at the right hand of God hearing our prayers and pleading our case before the Father. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 9:24. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. In other words, he doesn't enter into a temple made with hands and into a holy place there. No, where does he enter into? He enters into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Isn't that awesome? That means that we are guaranteed that the Father hears our prayers, every single one of them. And that's because Jesus Christ is there on our behalf. 
But you know what else? It's just as any human father would, our heavenly father gives to us what is best for us and not always what we want. <laughs> Sometimes God does miraculously take away our trouble, like the day that he saved my job. But most often, I think that God answers our prayer for deliverance through discipline. Discipline. Sometimes his answer to our prayer is something like this in Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline you, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom the Father does not discipline? And then in verse 10, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. I don't know about you, but I want to share in his holiness. I want to learn to be holy just like he is. You see, so often our trials are God's way of shaping us. Whether God disciplines us by letting us wander in the desert for a while to learn to depend on him, or by allowing our sin to imprison us so that, so that when we repent we can taste the true freedom of grace like never before. Or maybe God shapes us by responding to our complaints, by teaching us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7. Sometimes God allows us even to come to our wit's end. And he does that so that we can see his mighty power over our puny little rebellious will and even over those corny storms of life. But our deliverance from trouble begins when we cry out to God. The sense here is a cry for help. It's an acknowledgement of, of our desperate need for God. It's a humble prayer to God that we are too small for our circumstances, but our God is so much bigger. And so we cry out to God as we confess our weakness, and we know that we need God if we've got any hope to be delivered from our distress. And you know what? That's exactly where God wants us to be. Because when we're approaching God from that perspective, that's when he can place us on the road that is paved with his steadfast love. And so back to Psalm 107, in answer to their cries, because of the steadfast love of God, he delivers his people. Verse 7, he led them by a straight, that is an upright way. He led them by an upright way till they reached the, a city to dwell in. God also, in verse 14, brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. And in verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And then in verse 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Our Lord delivers us in the same kind of ways. Christ leads us by a straight way, by an upright way. 1 Peter 1.15, but, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God gives us the ability to do that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And you see, instead of our needing to be in a city and in a temple, to be at a dot on a map, we are always near to God because of the life-giving Spirit who lives in us. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Hallelujah. Christ has also broken our bonds of slavery to sin. 
Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And Christ, the word made flesh, has healed us and he saved us from destruction. And what a coincidence that the catechizer read these two verses earlier because we both chose them by the direction of the Holy Spirit. God has given us peace in Christ because he's calmed the storm. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so Christ, the word made flesh, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you had been healed. Isn't that our reason to praise? Isn't that our reason to praise? The steadfast love of God is poured out on us through his son and he delivers us when he hears our cry for help. It is guaranteed that he hears our cry for help and he gives us true peace. He heals us. And so that's why, besides the opening line of the psalm, the writer reminds us to praise God four more times. Verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let's never, ever let the love of God become something that's mundane. Let's always remember to praise him to praise him and give him thanks every single day as we think about what he has done for us. But you see, the reason that God can do all that he does is because he's in control. God is in control. And this is our next section in verses 33 through 42. Very quickly, in the first two verses of this section, God reverses the prosperity of the wicked. He turns rivers into a desert and springs of water into thirsty ground and so on. And then beginning in verse 35, he reverses the plight of those who hunger for God. He does exactly the opposite of what he did for the wicked. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. The point is that God can change even nature for his purposes. He can change the human heart, and he disciplines people for their failures. People can either flourish with God's blessing when they're believers, or they can become humbled by God's judgment. That's the choice we've got. And even princes are not immune from the judgment of God. That's a lesson that Zedekiah knew all too well. But in verse 41, God raises up the needy. That is, he raises up those who walk with God. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The verb raises up means that they're lifted up inaccessibly high. They're out of reach. They're out of reach from the enemy. That's exactly what Christ has done for us, isn't it? 
He's given us an eternally safe place to be. And that is in a place where he has lifted us up out of reach from anyone who might want to destroy us, including the devil. John 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so if you're keeping score, it's pretty clear that Christ has the victory, isn't it? He has the victory over our distress. He delivers us from every difficulty we can face. There is nothing that is too big for our Lord to handle. And so we go back to the big idea. Since God delivers us, we the redeemed should praise him now and forever, shouldn't we? It's the, it's the only response, the only proper response we can have to this kind of love. In whatever situation that the people of God found themselves, they knew that they could cry out to God for help and that God would hear them and he would answer them according to his steadfast love. That's why they praise him. Christ gives us all the more reason to praise God since he's living proof of God's steadfast love. It is Christ himself who delivers us. This is what Ernest was reading about a little while ago in Luke chapter 4 when he read about how Jesus read from Isaiah. In verse 18, he said, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We're set free. We're set free. We're no longer bound by sin. We're now slaves to Christ, as Paul put it. And so we should pray with confidence as we take home a very valuable lesson. God is able to lift you God is able to lift me out of our distress, no matter what it is. And he does it. He does it because of his steadfast love that he proved to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, last week I, I teased us a little bit about how we put on our Jesus faces. You know, we show up to church and I'm fine and you're fine, everybody's fine and we're smiling and Everything's fine, right? Everything is fine. But I think our Lord has given us the perfect alternative to that in Psalm 107. I think what our Lord is showing us is that really we ought to be chomping at the bit to get to church and to proclaim the goodness of God. We should be itching to tell somebody... Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me this week. Let me tell you what the Lord is doing. And even, even if we're in the deepest despair, we can say to one another, I'm going through the hardest time in my life. But you know what? I'm rejoicing in the steadfast love of God. Because as I look back over my life, as I look at that map of my life, I can see God at work here, and I can see God at work there. I know, because he's proven to me over and over again, that his steadfast love endures. And so I'm standing on that promise right now today. And you see, that testimony to one another can build our faith. 
And when we testify to each other about that, there's nothing left to do but to rejoice and to praise God. And we praise him because Christ hears our prayers. He hears our prayers this morning. And so as we look back over the map of our lives, no matter where you've been, no matter how God delivered you, you can see that your roads to this place this morning, today, are paved with his steadfast love. And we can also know that he's going to deliver us again and again and again as we travel along the way. And so brothers and sisters, do as the last verse of this psalm exhorts you to do. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have an advocate with you. We have our Lord, interceding for us on our behalf before you. And so it is guaranteed that our prayers are answered. And so, Father, we ask that you would relieve us from the distress that we're going through in this moment. And, Lord, that as you do so, you would cause us to rejoice and to praise your name forever and ever. Amen.